All right, so welcome everyone. Um, we'll do it a little bit different today, uh, and in a little while I'll get someone to come up and do the reading rather than have that first, because it's one of those complicated ones that we need a bit of background before we get to the reading, or else we don't quite know what he's talking about. Um, so apologies in advance, it's a little bit of a monster, this topic. Um, I thought it would have been really simple, I don't know about you guys, but turns out there's a lot to it. Um, so yeah, let's move on. So um, I grew up in church, um, kind of probably like most of you guys, and had this sort of generic idea that you die and go to heaven and float in the clouds or whatever, but that's it, good. That's sort of the extent of my understanding of things. Um, and over the last couple of years, been looking a bit more about what the Bible has to say about it, and I was actually quite surprised that it doesn't say a lot. Um, it doesn't say a lot about what happens when we die, um, but it does say a lot about a whole lot of other things, as we will find out. Um, so yeah, this, this sermon is looking particularly at what happens with life after death and what is our hope. We talk all about this hope we have and what actually does that look like. So if you already all know all this, then sorry in advance, it might sound a bit like a Heaven 101 sermon. But I also figure that if I spent that much time in church and never really understood what was going on, then perhaps some of you are the same. And also, um, since we're exploring this theme of suffering, um, I think it's important to contrast it with the hope that we're promised Evil and suffering is a reality, but it's not all that there is. So what I found most surprising is, just to show how little the Bible talks about it, what happens when you die, um, you know, where do we end up? Um, and as we call to mind what we are told about where we go when we die, we find the following things. And I'm just going to rush through these pretty quickly. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I, have, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That was Jesus comforting his disciples before his death. Jesus on the cross talking to the criminal next to him, saying, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul in 2 Corinthians. Know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord. Paul's saying it sounds pretty good. Paul again in Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So all those verses paint this picture that, that when a believer dies, they go to heaven to be with the Lord. And I think that's how we should understand it. I know there's a few different opinions on that, but that's what seems to make sense to my brain and looks like that's the most common position throughout Christianity. Um, so while that might agree with what you assume about heaven and what happens when you die. That's pretty much the extent of, of my understanding and what I believed. This isn't going to be the focus of today's message because, surprisingly, this isn't the hope, as in like the, the number one hope that the Bible talks about. It wasn't the hope of the ancient Israelites. It wasn't the hope of the disciples. It wasn't the hope of the early church. But in a lot of the world today, the extent of the Christian hope is that when we die, we'll go to heaven and hang out with God in the clouds. And there's no issue with believers, with thinking believers go to heaven when they die. The only problem is when that's the end of our belief. 
N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, says, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. And most of his book he describes as talking more about life after, life after death. So yes, that may be the case. You go to heaven and float around, whatever that looks like when you die. But there's more than that. There's more to the picture. So if you've been looking forward to floating around on the clouds and joining that eternal choir practice, you might be a bit disappointed by what's to follow. But if that sounds a bit more like torture to you, then you might be very happy to hear this. So the Bible does seem to paint that picture that we have in our minds that we go to heaven when we die, but it makes it clear that that's not the final destination. Or perhaps to be more specific, not the final state of mankind. Let's look at what some of the Old Testament believers wrote concerning their hope of what's to come. I'm already there. Um, so we looked at this last week, what Job was saying. This is in the midst of his suffering and all of his complaints. And he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And yet my skin, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And in the book of Daniel, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, you who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So the dead are dust-dwelling sleepers, and resurrection will wake them up. Well, the metaphor that Isaiah depicts is the earth giving birth, the tomb is a womb, and one day the dead will emerge in renewed bodily life. So that's a slightly different hope there to what, what, what we think. These are all talking of a bodily resurrection, not a disembodied spirit. And they're not talking about instant as in right now, like, like what Paul was talking about. One day there will be that future hope. One day the dead will rise. One day the earth will give birth to the dead. Not as soon as someone dies and it's in the ground they're given birth. So what hap- seems to happen is we combine the two, or at least I did. Um, if the New Testament scriptures were assured of instantly going to heaven without our bodies, then we read through these, these through the lens and we mash that metaphor into our new mould then we read the Old Testament and all this talk about resurrection, we think they mean more like a spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. It does sound a bit ridiculous after all, doesn't it? And I want to show you quickly a really interesting part in the book of Second Maccabees. So this is not in our Bible, um, but it's writing about an event that happened about 160 BC, so pretty close to the time of Jesus. Um, and it's just quite helpful to understand the beliefs of the Jews at this time. So this was the time when the Jews were rebelling against their rulers. Uh, a few months ago, Sarah mentioned about this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, pretty horrible ruler over the Jews, um, claiming to be God, sacrificed a pig on the altar, that kind of thing. Not, not a favorite guy for the Jews. Um, and this story is not really going to help his reputation either. Um, so there's this horrible passage in 2 Maccabees 7. It's called, A Mother and Her Sons Die for Their Faith. This family's been arrested and tortured, and I'll save all the gory details, but basically the first son gets killed, but before he does, he says, we would rather die than abandon the traditions of our ancestors. And he gets killed pretty horribly, and they turn to the next son, and we read, I will not do it. So the soldiers tortured him, just as they had the first one, but with his dying breath, he cried out to the king, you butcher, you may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us from the dead and give us eternal life because we have obeyed his laws. And then they turn to the next son. 
So you can see his hope in the resurrection there in his, in his words. The soldiers began entertaining themselves with the third brother. When he was ordered to stick out his tongue, he quickly did so. Then he bravely held out his hands and courageously said, God gave these to me, but his laws mean more than my hands, and I know God will give them back to me again. A physical bodily resurrection with hands. The next son, the king and those with him were amazed at his courage and his willingness to suffer. After he had died, the soldiers tortured the fourth in the same cruel way. But his final words were, I am glad to die at your hands, because we have the assurance that God will raise us from death. But there will be no resurrection to life for you, Antiochus. And finally, the mother saying to each of her sons, I do not know how your life began in my womb, she would say. I was not the one who gave you life and breath and put, you t and put together each part of your body. It was God who did it. God who created the universe, the human race, and all that exists. He is merciful and he will give you back life and breath again because of your love, because you love his laws more than you love yourself. So bodily resurrection does sound pretty hard to believe, but not in the context of a creator God. He created Adam from the dust of the ground, created everything from nothing. Surely resurrecting someone is much easier than that. So this is probably the most explicit example we see of what they believed about bodily resurrection. It's, it's really obviously they're not expecting to be floating around as ghosts, are they? So let's fast forward about 150 years from these events and we come to the time of Paul and the Pharisees. So um, Paul's belief in the resurrection was the same as the Pharisees and there was a time when everyone was teaming up against Paul and he, when he was trying to teach about Jesus and he noticed there was two groups in there, some that did believe in the resurrection of the dead and some that didn't. So he's sort of quite smart and pits them against each other to get out of the tight situation. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So you see, that, that Jewish belief in resurrection was right from the beginning, right carried all the way through to the time of Jesus in the early church. Another time when Paul was on trial, he said the following, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before, man, before God and man. So this is Paul's defense. He's saying, I'm not a heretic. I, I believe the same thing as these guys. The only difference is that he believed Jesus got his bodily, bodily resurrection before everyone else did. So yeah, we see that same belief in a bodily resurrection right since the beginning and maintained right up to the time of Jesus and beyond. The Jewish view was that of a bodily resurrection. The Greek view, however, was more that matter was evil and the soul was good. So Jewish hope was ultimately for a physical resurrection of our bodies, and that would be something that the Greek mindset would think is horrible. You know, matter is bad. Why would we want another body? We've just escaped it. But in the, in the beginning, God created man out of matter with physical bodies, and it was good. The Jewish hope was ultimately for a physical resurrection of our bodies, 
something that showed continuity and discontinuity with the current experiences. So you see the continuity there. We will be glorified. Job says it'll be I and not another. It'll still be me. There's discontinuity there. Something different. We will be glorified. You know, our bodies will be transformed in, into something new, just like Jesus after his resurrection. The same person, but a bit different. And we can speculate on all the details of that, um, but I think it's best to keep it generic, or you guys can have fun with those speculations. But we're told it will be good. That's all we need to know. So the early church was influenced a bit by this Greek mindset. You die and you escape your body, you know, disembodied in heaven. Um, and in Acts 17, Paul was mocked on his teaching about the resurrection when he was preaching in Athens with the Greek mindset there. And I really love what C.S. Lewis says in response to those resurrecting the idea of a physical resurrection. He says, there is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think that this is rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. I think that's really good. When we look back in Genesis, things were physical and things were good. It's interesting to see that the disciples would have had no issue if Jesus said, I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'll be resurrected. They would have said, we know that, We're all, that's going to happen to all of us. But the twist was when Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be resurrected in three days and it will be just me, not, the, not everyone's. I'm not talking the general resurrection here, I'm talking just me. That's where it was a bit of a twist on their expectations. So with all that in mind, having a bit of a background to the beliefs of the Jews and the Greeks and what their hope was, now I'm going to give you a break from hearing my voice and get Jenny or Abby to come and do some reading for me. So this is Paul's teaching about the implications if there is no bodily resurrection. Ah, sweet. Okay. Romans chapter eight, eighteen to twenty-five. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation awaits an eager expectation for the children of, the, of God to be revealed in us. For the creation awaits an eager expectation. Huh? Wait. For the creation awaits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. 
who hopes for what they already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So I messed up my paperwork so we can have both readings at the same time. Thank you. Um, second readings, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at 12 to 23. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not Christ, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then fond, found to be a false witness about God, for we have testified about God, and that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is fertile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. But only for this life we have hope in Christ. We are all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all have been made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, so Paul was struggling with a group of believers who doubted that there would be a bodily resurrection. There were ideas that gained a bit of following in the first and second century that were heavily influenced by Greek thinking. And they sort of ended up being a hybrid of Christianity and Greek ideas. And there were lots of different things about it, but the, the main standout one was uh, that matter is evil and the spirit realm is good, which as a result, the doctrine of a bodily resurrection wouldn't fit in that box. Um, and it also had the bonus of it sounds a bit more rational, you know, easy to justify a spiritual resurrection than a physical one, that sounds a lot more difficult. Dead people don't rise, and it seems easy to say that Jesus rode spiritually, not physically. And this is something that Jesus discredits himself when he says, you know, he says himself, don't worry, I'm not a ghost. He says, touch, touch my hands. And on another occasion, he breaks bread, and another time he eats a meal with them. So to our ear, it sounds a bit ridiculous, this idea of a bodily resurrection. But it was the same for them too. The same concerns have been raised for thousands of years. What about those eaten by animals, burnt with fire, drowned, dissolved? And I'm not that great with the sciencey stuff, but my understanding is that our bodies aren't made of anything particularly special. It's more about how we're arranged, and I figure if God can get access to the material, which from the sound of things is everywhere, as long as he remembers the order to put us back together, I'm sure he can remember that. I couldn't do it, but I think he's, he's got it under control. So in that passage that we just read, we see Paul arguing that the resurrection of Jesus is evidence for the bodily resurrection of everyone to come. He's saying, why are, you just, why are you not believing that we will all rise again? It's just happened to Jesus. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The bodily resurrection that we are waiting for, why do you think it's so impossible? We just saw it happen. If God can do it to him, why not for us? 
if there is no resurrection for Christ, if there is no resurrection for mankind, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. So don't try to over-spiritualize that resurrection of Jesus. Paul is saying the hope of believers has always been a bodily resurrection. And if we don't have that hope, we have nothing. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And Paul's really intentional with his word there, first fruits. Um, it's an intentional choice of words, and it means more to the Jews of that time than it does for us so far removed. First fruits refers to the first portion of the harvest which is given to God. Most notably, the first fruits are the first to come in time, a pledge or a hope of, of the greater harvest to follow and specially dedicated to God. The first of more to follow, not the first and only, not the first and last, the first with the expectation of more. In Jeremiah 2.3, Israel was described as the first fruits of God's harvest. So a nation was described as God's first fruits. The idea that Israel was God's special people and that through them all nations would be blessed and come to know God. Israel was the first with the expectation of more people to follow. And there's also an interesting coincidence here, um, and it's probably more likely it's intentional planning, that the Passover lambs were sacrificed on the 14th day of the month. The first day of Passover was the 15th, and the Feast of First Fruits fell on the 16th, the third day after sacrificing the Passover lamb. Their new day started at sunset. So if Jesus died at Passover, fulfilling the Passover lamb, his resurrection was a fulfillment of First Fruits. Sound like a coincidence? This is where we should have focused on this reading. But we'll make sense of it. So as we just heard. I love this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is not seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. For what hope were they saved? To float around like ghosts in the clouds? No, adoption, redemption of the bodies. He goes on to say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And just a bit of a background on those present sufferings that Paul says aren't that big of a deal in the big picture. We read in 2 Corinthians all that he's been through, being in prison, being flogged, exposed to death again and again. Five times he received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods, pelted with stones, shipwrecked three times, spent a night and day at open sea. He's in danger everywhere he goes. Those are those present sufferings that he considers not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And it's not a matter of him calling those things nothing or that it's not that bad, don't worry. He's not minimizing suffering, but he's comparing it with what's on the other end of the scales, the glory to come, claiming that that is going to be so much bigger and better than what we currently experience. C.S. Lewis, again, commenting on this verse that Paul says. He says, if this is so, if what Paul is saying is true, then a book on suffering which says nothing of heaven is leaving out almost the whole of one side of the account. Scripture and tradition habitually put the joys of heaven 
into the scale against the sufferings of death, and no solution of the problem of pain which does not do so can be called a Christian one. Trying to resolve the problem of evil and suffering in this lifetime is not going to do it. It must be seen in the light of the promises of God and eternity. When we say suffering is normal and to be expected, that's true right now. But in the grand scheme of things, suffering is the exception. In the scale of eternity, we will have spent such a tiny amount of time in our current state of suffering. We're talking about something that so out far outweighs our present suffering. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So here we see the gospel hope is so much more than going to heaven when you die and still more than a resurrection body. It's the liberation and restoration of all of creation. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he's called the first fruits, the first installment, the first part of the harvest. But not just the first of the resurrected humans, he's the first installment on what's to come, a new heaven and a new earth, the new order of things to come. It says creation waits with eager longing for the redemption of, of the sons of God. Back in Genesis, as mankind fell, all creation fell with them. The curse affected more than just the humans. Jesus is called our living hope. It's a hope that is to come, but it's also a hope that we've seen the start of it. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, says that the early Christians believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at Easter. Paul again continues, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the pains of death are one thing, but the pains of childbirth are different. It's in the hope of birthing something new. Creation is waiting for this new thing. It's not like the words we saw last week in the book of Job, where he's eagerly waiting to die and get this over with. Creating is waiting for something more. It's not saying, you know, hurry up and get this over with so we can disappear and cease to exist. It's waiting for something new to come. So this resurrection hope makes sense when we consider the life for which we were made. In Genesis 2, we don't read about a disembodied Adam and Eve who eventually received bodies from the Lord. No, God made the man from the ground and the woman from man. Embodied people, that was the pattern that was disrupted by death. God's original plan, that man would be caretakers to rule the earth to the glory of God. And obviously with the fall of man, that didn't work out. But, but think about it. Great and powerful God gets his plans ruined by Satan and some, whether you call them rebellious or gullible humans. Does that sound right? Last week, Job said, what God does, no one can undo. No one can thwart his plans. So after the fall, did God say, oh, stink, that, that plan failed. Um, best I can do now is snatch up some souls and bring them to heaven to float around with me for eternity. Is, is that his plan B that's the best he can do? Now, too bad about that plan A with the earth and creation and all that cool stuff. I guess that's a write-off now. Didn't see that coming. So only two humans ever got to experience that. Now God has resorted to this backup plan. Without realising it, that belief says that God was defeated. I mentioned that the Bible doesn't 
seem to tell us too much about what happens when we die, but it actually says quite a bit about a new heaven and a new earth to come. Restored to what it was intended to be, it's God dwelling with man, very intentional parallels to the garden there. And we're just going to skim through a couple of these to give us an idea. This is at the end of Revelation. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from those on the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So again, at the end of Revelation, we don't see the hope to come described as individual souls going up to heaven. It's heaven coming down, God coming to dwell with mankind. That same language is back in Eden. God's not just redeeming your spirit or your soul. He's redeeming our bodies and also the whole of creation. And to Peter, he says, You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's what the early Christians always had to look forward to. Things aren't going that well for us here, but actually if, God's, if what God is saying is true, then we go through this life twice. The first pretty quickly and a bit crappy at times. The second time is for eternity. No pain, sickness, death. And a restored creation where righteousness dwells, as God intended it to be. That sounds all right, eh? <laughs> so Jesus didn't come to offer an alternative plan. He came to fulfill the original one. He had a redemptive plan that reaches out to all of creation. In case you haven't realized, heaven is a confusing place. Um, and I think part of our confusion seems to be that word heaven, usually thought of as the dwelling place of God, which is a good description. But here the Bible seems to talk of present heaven and a future heaven. Present heaven being disembodied, future heaven being resurrection bodies. The future one joined with the new earth, the current one, I, I don't know where it's located, but it's not here. And so you can see how having... The current heaven and the future heaven doesn't help with our confusion of that terminology. It seems like we can accurately say heaven is filled with disembodied believers, referring to right now. And it seems like we can also say heaven will be joined with the new earth and filled with believers in their resurrection bodies. Almost the complete opposite. The new heaven and the new earth is where we will have life after, life after death. Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology when referring to this place, Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever. But in fact, the, Bible, the biblical teaching is richer than that. It tells us that there will be new heavens and a new earth, an entirely renewed creation, and we will live with God there. Colossians 1.19 This is talking of Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. To reconcile to himself some things? No, all things. If he wanted to communicate that his goal is that the gospel goal is just to save the spirits of the spirit aspect of humans only, then he's done a pretty bad job of getting that point across, hasn't he? All this talk of all creation, all things. And we see lots of these these words up here, resurrection, redemption, reconciliation, renewal, regeneration, restoration. Those are all re-words, right? Resurrection, becoming embodied again after death. The same body made alive. Redemption, buying back what was formerly owned. Reconciliation, regaining a friend. Renewal, making new again. Regeneration, being born again, having a new beginning. Restoration, restoring to an original state, bringing back the lost. You can't do any of those things. You can't redeem, restore, or regenerate something that doesn't yet exist. Those are not brand new words. Those are second-hand words. They're renewing an existing thing. God hangs onto his original fallen creation and salvages it. He refuses to abandon the work of his hands. In fact, he sacrifices his own son to save his original project. Can you see how all those big topics fit together? Resurrected bodies are not just intended to float in space or in the clouds. They call for a new earth on which to live and work and glorify God. So that doctrine of the resurrection body makes no sense without the doctrine of the new earth and the other way around although you could probably have a new earth without humans, and in some ways that might be all right for the earth. But it doesn't make sense to, to give us that hope of a physical body without a physical place to be in, does it? And it makes a lot more sense when we start seeing all those pieces separately and bring them together. So this has been pretty full on. Um, if you are familiar with this kind of teaching, you'll be nodding and say, yep. And if you're first time seeing it, I remember when I first saw it, I thought, what the heck, you know, this is not the religion I thought I was in. Um, but it's so much bigger than that picture that we have of God offers a few humans who believe in him the opportunity to float around for eternity. So I just think it's really cool looking at what the Bible actually says and surprised to find it's better than I thought. Yeah. Often you're scared of looking into these kind of things thinking, oh, if I really knew about it, I wouldn't be that keen. But this sounds good. And So I know it's been a bit technical, but I hope you find it encouraging to see that bigger picture and to see a glimpse of the hope to come. And it's really tempting to try and find those specific details about what to expect. And again, like the previous weeks, we don't seem to get all the answers we want. But we know enough about what the world to come will look like that it does sound pretty good, I think. No more death, crying or pain. A place where righteousness dwells. God with us. No sin. We don't know what it, that looks like, but we know what doesn't fit in those categories. The details don't really matter as much when everything implied sounds great. And I just want to finish with some words again from C.S. Lewis. Um, this is from his last book in the Narnia series, so it, it's fiction. I'm, I'm not quoting this for the literal truth of it. But I think he gets across this idea better than any example that I've come across. Um, so in the last battle, Narnia has just been destroyed and they're taken to Aslan's country, only to find they're, they're in a new, more real version of Narnia. And sorry if that's spoilers if you're not familiar with it. Um, so they arrive in this new country and say, I have come home at last. 
this is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. I love that last line. The things we see in this world that, that are awesome, those good things, they're good because God is good. And that's what we can expect to see. Those things that are not good, the things that make this life really crappy and horrible, we can expect to not be seeing those in the world to come. Again from the Narnia book, the story ends with the following. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. So I reckon he's painting that biblical picture really well. He leaves us on a cliffhanger, wanting to find out more, but at the same time he says enough for us to know that even though we don't understand it all, we haven't got a, a single answer about what's, what's happening next, but we know it will be good. I just think that's a really cool picture that he paints there of what we can be looking forward to in the world to come.